I want to say good morning to you all. What a blessed honor we have to be here in the house of the Lord amongst the saints who have put on their schedule the Lord's services. We are so delighted to be able to offer up our spiritual sacrifices unto God. And we ought to be doing it reverently and with godly fear, ensuring that the sacrifices that we offer up, according to Hebrews, the 12th chapter, verse 28 and 29, are acceptable. We serve a God who is a consuming fire. And for that reason, we ought to be very circumspect about how we are offering up our spiritual sacrifices. I want to thank the men that led those sacrifices before me this day. Uh, and I, as we pray, we hope that they would redound to the glory of God. This month, it is hastening to a conclusion. We have, to recall your memory, been discussing what is better. We've been discussing that our lives are better in Christ. Perhaps you think on times past when you did not belong to the one body which belongs or is the Lord's Jesus Christ. You might remember a time past when you were doing things that were not according to the will of God. Perhaps many of you were doing things before putting on Christ, before being added to his one body. You are doing things amiss, supposing that you were doing them according to what God had wanted. Nevertheless, we realize that God has provided us a way to live. God has provided us a way to conduct ourselves. And God has given us his son for us to hearken to. For him to be the author of eternal salvation. And for us to realize that our lives become much better when we belong to Christ. We've been studying that all month long. We discussed in week one how things are better in Christ Jesus. In week two, we discussed how even better than our sacrifices, God is looking for our obedience. How obedience is even better than those sacrifices that we would offer up unto the Lord. In week three, we discussed how we as a better family in Christ Jesus... Better than even our physical families, according to the flesh. Better than even some of the friendships we would have in this world. We, in Christ Jesus, have a better family. It's a better family with a better name. And because of that, we discussed that we ought to have a better esteem for one another. Just last week, we discussed our work in the church and we likened it unto a vineyard. We likened it to a vineyard and how there is no better vineyard in the world in which we ought to work in. And for that reason, we have no better inheritance. Over and over, week to week, we've been talking about things being better in Christ. This brings us to our last segment. This brings us to our last segment. Perhaps you recall what the brother just read to you. But what the brother just read to you in the 118th Division of Psalm. Surely the psalmist is displaying the goodness and the mercy of the Lord and how it would endure forever. 
But if we drop down just a little bit in the 118th division of Psalm, we see here in verse number eight, the psalmist would say it as such. He says, it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. You know, I'm thinking back just a little bit ago when the brother asked that wonderful question as we are studying Romans, the 12th chapter. He asked that wonderful question about how do we offer ourselves as or how do we present our bodies as a living sacrifice? So many times we read scriptures, but perhaps we don't take the proper time to critically think through and meditate on what the scriptures are truly asking us to do. When we think about our trust, when we think about how life has been proved to be better for us, when we trust in the Lord, even as the psalmist would say, perhaps the reader or one would have to question, well, how do we trust in the Lord? It goes no further than what we see in the scriptures. When we realize the character of God, when we realize his care and concern for his people, when we realize how he has established a way to preserve those in whom he loves. Because of this very fact, we realize it's better to trust in the Lord than it can ever be to trust in any man or any princess. When we look at the biblical narrative, when we read the scriptures, when we uh, synchronize it with our own lives, perhaps you think on a time before you were in Christ, how things were so difficult, how you weren't able to deal with all of the obstacles, all of the trial and tribulation that would be brought to your doorstep, perhaps because you're putting your confidence and your trust in what men say, perhaps you're putting your confidence and trust in what the blogs say. Perhaps you're not putting your confidence and trust in what God wants for you. There is no better trust that we can have than to be trusting in the Lord. What does it mean? What does it mean to trust in the Lord? It means no matter what we're doing in our lives, whether it's work, whether it's school, whether we are doing our duties to be able to put food on our table, we need to understand that the best and the most optimal position is to be having that confidence in what God has provided for us. Seemingly, obstacle and obstacle will come to our doorstep. Trial and tribulation would not cease to exist. If we get overwhelmed, if we get, if we get and fall into the context of surfeiting because of all of this, we can quickly lose sight of what's important in this life. And what's important in this life is how we conduct ourselves. What's important in this life is who we put our trust in. Why? Because of those promises. Why? Because of the family. Why? Because of the obedience. Because of the inheritance that we have in heaven's eternal glory. There is nothing that man can contrive that could even amount to what God has prepared for those that love him. When we think about the biblical narrative, we think about what the psalmist would say, he talks about this trust. We think even about what the prophet Jeremiah would say over there in Jeremiah, the 17th chapter. If you turn in your Bibles over to Jeremiah, the 17th chapter, you would see Jeremiah, the prophet dealing with Judah in Jerusalem. And you would see in Jeremiah, the 17th chapter, as we do just a little bit of reading. 
in Jeremiah, the 17th chapter, that God was very much vested in the welfare and the well-being of his people. However, he would hearken and tell his people to hearken unto him, to listen to him, to keep his ways, to keep his commandments, to keep his law, to do all of those things within so that he would be able to preserve them. But nevertheless, we see the sin of Judah in verse one of Jeremiah, the 17th chapter says the sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron and with a pen or excuse me, with the point of a diamond. It is graven upon the table of their heart and upon the horns of your altars while their children remember their altars in their groves by the green trees upon the high hills. O my mountain in the field, I will give thy substance and I will treasures or in all thy treasures to the spoil in thy high places for sin throughout all thy borders. And you, even thyself, shalt discontinue from thine heritage that I gave thee. And I will cause thee to serve thine enemies in the land which thou knowest not. For ye have kindled a fire in mine anger, which shall burn forever. We see here that the children of Judah and Jerusalem would struggle in following after what God had planned for them. And because of that, their heritage would be taken from them. Their heritage would not only be taken from them, but they were going to have to go serve people that they do not know in a land that they do not know. Because of the sin of Judah, there was going to be a consequence to the people of the Lord. We continue to read in verse number five. It says, thus saith the Lord, curse be the man that would trust in man and make the flesh his arm whose heart departs from the Lord. We know that it is very important that our hearts need to be resolved, which is to say our minds need to be focused on doing what the Lord has provided us to do. That's to live godly. That's to live holy. That's to be separate and apart from individuals in this world who are altogether ungodly. This is very, very important for us to consider because when we think about this point, we would see Christ even cite this point in Matthew, the 15th chapter. And in Matthew, the 15th chapter, as he's citing the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah, the 29th chapter at around verse number 13, he would say, they honor me with their lips. In the context of Matthew, the 15th chapter, Christ is speaking with those Jews. He's speaking with those individuals who should have known the law. Should have known the way of the Lord. But what were they doing? Matthew, the 15th chapter, verse number nine, they were teaching for the doctrines and the commandments of men. They ought not to be doing these things. They're setting up their own established righteousness. They're setting up their own manner of holiness instead of just trusting in almighty God. Nevertheless, in the, in the context of Matthew, the 15th chapter, Christ there is saying that they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. We see a residual side effect of people trusting in man. We see that here in Jeremiah, the 17th chapter. There's even a curse to those that would trust in man and make the flesh his arm whose heart would depart from the Lord. Christians, we cannot have our hearts to depart from the Lord. We can ill afford to be at a guilty distance against almighty God. We see here in Jeremiah, the 17th chapter at verse number six, it says, he shall be like the heath in the desert and shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness and in a salt land and not inhabited. But in Jeremiah, the 17th chapter at verse number seven, on the contrary, the Bible would say this, 
Blessed is the man that trusts in the Lord, whose hope is, or the Lord is. Whose hope the Lord is. We've discussed that hope when we were talking about that inheritance that has been given to us as Christians. Our inheritance is in heaven's eternal glory. We need not to be like Judah in Jerusalem who was struggling during the time to follow after the ways of the Lord whose heritage was then taken away. We don't want our inheritance taken away. We have an inheritance in heaven's glory. I don't care what you do in this life. I don't care what tax bracket you enter into. I don't care how much square footage you have in your house. I don't care how much acreage you have on your land. I don't care how big that car that you drive is. No matter what you can attain in this life, it will never amount to the glory in which God has prepared for us. That inheritance in heaven's eternal glory, if we just simply keep our trust in him, will not be removed from us. Nevertheless, there's no better hope in this world. As we conclude in Jeremiah, the 17th chapter, you might remember this scripture. You might remember this phrase as the psalmist would even say this in the first psalm. It says, for he shall be as a tree planted by the waters and that spread out her roots by the river and shall not see when the heat comes. But here or but her leaf shall be green and shall not be careful in the year of drought. Neither shall cease from yielding fruit. If we continue to keep our trust in the Lord, it won't matter when there's a little bit of dry time. It won't matter when it seems like we're inhabiting a deserted land. It won't matter when the rain is not coming for yet a little while. We will not cease to bring forth fruit. We have to keep our trust in the Lord. It is better to trust in the Lord than in man and in princes. We think back a little bit to an example that we see. A Gentile man by the, man, by the name of Naaman. Let's think back all the way to the book of 2 Kings, the 5th chapter. Don't you remember in 2 Kings, the 5th chapter, if you would just turn in your Bibles for a moment this morning. We will be reading out of 2 Kings, the 5th chapter. And here we have a man during the time of the divided kingdom, a man by the name of Naaman, Naaman being a captain of the host of the king of Syria. You remember this man was a great man with his master. He was honorable because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. He was a leper. He had leprosy. Leprosy during this time was one of the most cumbersome diseases that one could have. The boils in which that would come to people's skin, just it, it, it was such a contagious disease that you did not want. But nevertheless, as we do a little bit of reading, we see in verse two that the Syrians had gone out by the companies and had brought away captive out of the land of Israel, a little maid. She waited on Naaman's wife. She said unto her mistress, Would God, my Lord, were the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. These women, understanding Naaman's condition, wanting better for him. In verse number four, And one went in and told his Lord, saying, Thus and thus said the maid that is of the land of Israel. 
And the king of Syria said, Go to go, and I will send a letter unto the king of Israel. And he departed, and he took with him ten talents of silver, and six thousand pieces of gold, and ten changes of raiment. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, Now, when this letter is come unto thee, behold, I have therewith sent Naaman my servant to thee, that you may recover him of his leprosy. It came to pass when the king of Israel had read the letter and rent his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man doth sin unto me to recover a man of his leprosy? Wherefore, consider, I pray you, and see how he seeketh a quarrel against me. In other words, the king of Israel was struggling because he's saying, I'm not the one that can heal. I'm not the one that can kill and make alive. If you put your trust in me, there's going to be a quarrel against me if I cannot deliver that which you want me to deliver. You see why this man of Israel was wroth. But then this mediator, Elisha, comes. And it was so in verse 8, when Elisha, the man of God, had heard that the king of Israel had rent his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Wherefore has you rent, or why have you rent your clothes? Let him come now to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and with his chariot. He stood at the door of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger unto him. Elisha didn't even go to him in verse 10. Elisha sent a messenger unto him. And look what he told him to do. He says, go and wash in the Jordan seven times. Thy flesh shall come again to thee and you shall be clean. But Naaman, coming all of this way, not even able to speak face to face with this man, Elijah, a prophet was sent on behalf of Elijah to tell Naaman what he needed to do. Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be clean. But Naaman was wroth. He went away and said, behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord, his God, and strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. Are not Abana and Farfar rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and he went away in rage. Look at this. This man, Naaman, hearkening unto this word that this little maid who was from Israel that was serving his wife had said pertaining to his leprosy. He had listened to this and he had gone all the way over to Israel to meet that man, Elijah, to hear what he was going to have to do to cure himself of this leprosy. When he got there, he wasn't resolved in the word that was told of him. He wasn't resolved to go into Jordan and to wash seven times. Think about the irony. You came all this way to hear what you need to do to rid yourself of this leprosy, but you're not sufficed in the word that was told unto you. We'll put a pause there for a moment, but I don't know how many times you've dealt with people in this world who have been wondering how to come to God, who have been wondering how to call on the name of the Lord, who've been wondering how to get a better relationship with God Almighty. But when you tell them and when you start encouraging them to read their Bible, when you start showing them the scriptures, when those scriptures would lead to Christ and him being crucified, when those scriptures would lead to the blood of his cross, when those scriptures would lead to an individual calling on the name of the Lord through the watery grave of baptism. I don't know how many times people start to back up. I don't know how many times you've witnessed people 
start to repel what God has for them to do. You simply standing in between the word and this individual conveying the very message that they need in order to be healed, that they need in order to be cleansed. Oh, when I think about that wonderful scripture in first Peter, the second chapter at verse number 24, where it says, by his stripes, you are healed. As Peter there was citing Isaiah, the 53rd chapter, verses number three through five, talking about that suffering servant in Christ Jesus, who was going to have to go to the cross, who was going to have to be bitten or beaten, was going to have to be mocked, was going to have to be scorned, was going to have a crown of thorns placed in his head. Through his stripes, we find healing because he shed his blood. We had the opportunity of redemption. And we had the opportunity to be cleansed. Nevertheless, when we go back into Second Kings, the fifth chapter, Naban wasn't resolved in what was told of him of Elisha. Naaman wasn't resolved with how he ought to have been cleansed. So much so that he started thinking and trusting in his own self, trusting in man's wisdom about what was better. Go into Jordan, wash seven times. He's saying, well, look at the rivers that we have in Damascus. Aren't the rivers here much cleaner? The water is so clear, you can, you can see to the bottom. Why would I go in this muddy Jordan and wash seven times? It's simply about being obedient. It's simply about listening to what God's people have for you. What God has for you. And being obedient to the word of the Lord. You see in verse number 13, after Naaman would depart in rage, his servants came near and spake unto him. Thankfully, he had some wise servants in his camp. His servants came unto him and spake and said, my father, if the prophet had bid thee do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much rather than when he says, wash And be clean. Verse number 14. Then he went down. He dipped himself seven times in Jordan. According to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh came again. Like unto the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. You see we use this example. To show that. We need not to. As a Proverbs writer Rights lean on our own understanding. If things were left unto Naaman, he would have been a leper until his final day on the earth. However, because of the wise counsel of his servants, putting into the proper perspective, saying, if this man would have asked you to do some great thing, you would have listened. But because he simply told you something in order to be clean that was so simple that in your mind you can't fathom as to the reason of why your flesh would come back to you, you're not listening. I don't know how many of you have dealt with this when you're trying to explain to them. Those individuals, you simply have to go down in the watery grave of baptism after you've confessed Jesus Christ as Lord, after you have this mindset of repentance, bringing forth fruits, meat for repentance, after you've heard the gospel, after you've believed on Christ getting up from the dead. You have to be baptized into one church. I don't know how many individuals have repelled that message that you've dealt with. But it's almost as if you told them some great thing, they would believe you. If you told them to do a triathlon, run, bike and hike and do all of these great things, told them to do 15 backflips 
roll over three times. If you told them to do all of these fancy things, it's almost as if they would believe you, like you would have more credence in your words. But when it's simply hear and believe on the name of Christ Jesus and be baptized into his one church, it would not suffice unto them. We need not to be in the mindset of Naaman, where we think that our own way of things is better, or we think that the way of some man is better, but it is better to trust in the Lord. This is so important. When we think about our walk, when we think about what we are on this earth to do, it is to bring forth fruit unto God. It is to be here for those good works because of what Christ did for us, because he laid down his life for us, because he shed his blood for us. He was even buried on our behalf. On the third day, he would arise after suffering that cruel and agonizing death on Calvary's cross. He did all of that for us so that we can trust in the Lord. We see it on the third day when he arises from the grave, that we can have that confidence that just as he rose from the grave, we too will see a bodily resurrection. This is so important because we see pertaining to this trust what Paul would say in 2 Corinthians, the first chapter. Don't you remember those words in 2 Corinthians, the first chapter, when Paul is really establishing the whole precedent for the entire book of 2 Corinthians? He's talking about this God that we serve being the God of all comfort. In 2 Corinthians, the first chapter, though, looking there at verse number 7. It says, or rather, verse number eight, we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble, which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure above strength insomuch that we despaired even of life. But we had a sentence of death in ourselves. Paul was saying we were preaching this gospel so surely we were preaching this gospel so hard that we had the sentence of death impending us because of who we were preaching to. But even though. We had the sentence of death in ourselves. We should not trust in ourselves, but we should trust in God who raises the dead. Second Corinthians chapter one, verse 10 says, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. Look at this. Paul's explaining that our trust isn't in ourselves. It's not in what the Holy Spirit has given us in terms of the miraculous gifts. But our trust is in God who delivers the dead. This same God who delivered his son from death. His son who would simply trust in him all the days of his life. When he put on that cross, he still trusted in him. Trusted in him, understanding that it was a work that he had to finish. According to John, the 17th chapter and verse number four. He trusted in him to be begotten again from the dead. On the third day, he arose. He was seen alive about 40 days. He stepped on the cloud and is right now at the right hand of God. It's the same Christ whom we have confidence in. It's the same Christ who we have to listen to. It's the same Christ who we have to put on in our lives. There is a better trust. It's better to trust in the Lord than it is to man. It doesn't matter what ordinances, governmental officials, as we're discussing now in Romans, the 13th chapter, there's going to be some ordinances that the government puts up that we're going to have to scratch our heads at. There's going to be some things in which they put in the law that we say, wait a minute, that's conflicting with the word of God. We are much better 
to trust in God. We still lead quiet and peaceable lives. We're not in a contentious manner trying to oppose and revile government, but we're in a much better position if we would just trust in our God. So what? So what if the penalty is death? We have a trust in him that can raise the dead, just as he raised his son. That trust is so important. When we understand our Christian lives, we understand we're in a far better family. We have a far better work to do in this vineyard. We have a far better inheritance. Our obedience is far better than our sacrifices. But ultimately, we have a better trust because we trust an almighty God. I think about what Paul would say in Ephesians, the first chapter. Read it to you often, but in Ephesians, the first chapter, Paul is discussing this process of one becoming a Christian. Why should you become a Christian? Because in Christ, things are better. Does that mean in Christ, there's going to be no obstacles? No. Does that mean in Christ, there's going to be no tribulations or trials? No. Does that mean in Christ, we're not going to be pushed down every once in a while? Does that mean in Christ, we're not going to have to experience some growth? Certainly not. But it does mean that in Christ, we have better confidence and a better trust. We have a better hope that better hope of eternal life, that no matter what will happen to us in this life, so long as we hearken unto the will of God, we hearken unto his word, we order our steps according to his word, we can reap those eternal blessings. I remember in Ephesians, the first chapter, at verse number 13, in verse number 13, well, before 13, it says 12, that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ. Paul is saying, me and my company, the apostles, the prophets, we trusted in Christ. Verse 13, it says, In whom also you trusted, after that which you heard the word of truth. You heard the gospel of your salvation. This isn't the gospel of any random event happening in this world. This isn't the gospel of any crazy wind of doctrine. This is the gospel of your salvation. In order to be saved, in order to be in Christ, in order to be a Christian, in order to reap those better blessings and that better inheritance, You have to understand this gospel because this gospel is the gospel of your salvation. Paul would say in whom also after that you believed you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. And this Holy Spirit of promise is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. Paul's talking about the plan of salvation right here in these two or three verses. He's talking about the belief that comes after you hear that gospel. He's talking about the obedience, about being sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. How are you sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise? Well, I remember back to the day of Pentecost when Peter was preaching the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of your salvation, in Acts the second chapter. And those brethren stopped him when he said, you took him with wicked hands and you put him on a tree. You crucified him. They said, wait a minute, men and brethren, what should we do that we could be saved? They wanted to be healed. They realized they were culpable of the sins that they had committed, so they needed to be healed. They said, men and brethren, what should we do? Acts 2, verse 36 to 38. Peter said, you have to repent. Every last one of you, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. 
And you'll receive that promise of the Holy Spirit. This promise is unto you, it's unto your children, it's unto all that are far off. It's this process of becoming a Christian. Hearing the word of God, believing, confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord, repenting of our sins. Repentance is very, very important. Bringing fruits, feet, fruits meat for repentance. Going back to that question that that brother asked in Bible study. How do we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice? It's the continual sanctification of our minds. The continual sanctification and the setting apart of our bodies. Continuously, Luke 3 and verse 8, bringing forth fruit, meat for repentance. Repenting of those things that we did before we were in Christ. Why? Because while we're in Christ, things are much better. They were much worse when you were outside of Christ, but they're far better when you're in Christ. Then the question is, how do we become in Christ? We need to be baptized. That's what Peter would teach in Acts 2 and verse 38. Be baptized, every one of you. You're baptized, Galatians 3, verse 27, in the body of Christ, and you put on Christ. Acts 2 and verse 38, for the remission of sins. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse number 13, by one spirit, you're baptized into one body. You're baptized into his death, Romans 6, 3. But you understand that it's through the faith and operation of God that you're baptized. It's the circumcision according to Colossians 2, verse 11 and 12 that's made without hands. We would go back to what Paul said in in Ephesians, the first chapter, when we realize it's the gospel of your salvation. We connect that salvation to 1 Peter, the third chapter, verses 20 and 21, the light figure. So now baptism does now also save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but it's an answer of a good conscience towards God. That full submersion in the water. You have all your sins remitted. Where you can walk in the newness of life. Naaman the Syrian had his leprosy cleansed. But what's better in Christ is you can have all of your sins cleansed from you. Leprosy wouldn't ultimately keep you at a guilty distance from God. But sins will. And in order to get your sins remitted, you need to be baptized in the watery grave of baptism. Baptized in that one body which belongs to Christ Jesus. We'll finish with one scripture. Tying back that trust point. We remember in Psalm, the 40th division. In the 40th division of Psalm. Where it says, I waited patiently for the Lord in verse one, and he inclined unto me and I and heard my cry. He brought me up out of a horrible pit in the miry clay and set my feet upon a rock and established my goings. Imagine that. And he hath put a new song on my mouth, even praise unto our God. Many shall see it in fear and shall trust in the Lord. Verse number four says, blessed is the man that maketh the Lord his trust and respecteth not the proud, nor such as turn aside unto lies. We need not to believe a lie, but we need to believe the truth. And the truth is in the word of God. In order to be a Christian, you have to understand that plan of salvation. Hear the gospel, believe, come confessing your sins, repenting of those sins, confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord, rather. And you're baptized in that watery grave of baptism into that one body that belongs to Christ. It's named after Christ. It's the kingdom of God and it's the church of Christ. Acts 20 and verse 28, when Paul's talking to those elders, saying... He makes reference to taking heed unto yourselves and unto the flock in which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers. And to feed the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Christ Jesus 
shed his blood for this church, this purchased possession. It's a church that belongs to Christ. That's why in Romans 16, verse 16, he says, salute one another with the holy kiss. The churches, the called out assembly group of believers that belong to Christ, salute you. Be a part of that church because there's no better church. I don't care what corner you go on. There's no better church than the one that's found in your Bible. And it's the only church you can find in your Bible. We can live a better life, having a better inheritance, having better confidence and a better trust. And we understand that trust. In Revelation, the second chapter, verse number 10, we can receive that crown of life if we are just faithful unto death. That is the gospel message, a better trust. Why don't you come now while we together stand and sing a song of the Savior's invitation?